I think it feels really apt to be looking in specifically at John 3.16, given all that's been going on. So let me, let me um, read God's word, and then I'm going to pray. So firstly, John 3, verse 16 to 21, and then I'm going to move on to 1 John 2, verse 15 to 17. You, you've got that in your notice sheets, but also find it in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love the darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Moving on to 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Good morning. It's good to see you. Just a little wee reminder, if you are married, um, then can I invite you next Sunday evening to our marriage MOT? I don't know if you're free to come. 7.30 next Sunday evening. There's a sign-up sheet, I believe, on the welcome desk as you came in. If that's something that would be of help to you, um, and you've not already had a chance to sign up, please, please sign up. Uh, marriage MOT starts next Sunday evening, 7.30, runs for four weeks. And uh, if you can make uh, as many of those as you can, if that would be of help to you, why not come along? Um, I like Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know if you've ever read Calvin and Hobbes. It's not a long read because they're cartoon characters. You find them on the back of uh, newspapers occasionally. Calvin Hobbes is interesting because um, Calvin is a little boy with a vivid and vast and creative imagination. So he's always just huge daydreams. And there's a great little story of Calvin and Hobbes. And there's a funny cartoon where Calvin imagines that he's in a fighter plane, you know, a two-seater inline fighter plane. Um, Hobbes is at the front, Calvin's at the back, he's got his hands on the trigger, he's ready to shoot down whoever comes in, any enemy foe, he's going to just destroy them, he's going to take them out. And uh, Hobbes at the front says to Calvin, who's at the back with his hands on the gun, Calvin, there are enemies, there are bogeys, I'll use the word enemies, there are enemies at two o'clock. There are enemies at two o'clock. And uh, Calvin says uh, to, to Hobbes, well, okay, but what are we going to do till then? Um, how you use words is really important. You can have the same words and they mean very different things. I don't know if you picked that up from John. Uh, John wrote John's Gospel and he also wrote one John. And in the famous verse, the most famous verse in the whole Bible, it says, for God so loved the world. Yeah? But then you flick over and you look in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 15, and it says, do not love the world. And you think, aha! I always knew there's loads of mistakes in the Bible. Here's another one, right? 
Well, I want to show you that that's not what's going on here. John knows his words. He knows when to use which word. And sometimes, just like uh, Calvin and Hobbes, the same word can mean a different thing. And that's exactly what's happening here. But before we start this little journey into a whopping two or three verses this morning, it's just worth saying that Christians and how they understand and Christians and how they interact with the world has been the source of huge debate and difference and misunderstanding throughout the whole history of the church. My favorite story is of Simon Stylitis. You're sure you know him. He uh, was so convinced that the world was bad and that Christians should remove themselves, they should separate themselves from the world, that in about, um, I think it was, it's the fourth century, some, in the fourth century he said that I'm going to leave my local town uh, called Aleppo, that's been in the news sadly for different reasons, Recently, I'm going to leave my hometown of Aleppo and I'm going to live for 40 years, 37 to be precise, 40 years on top of a pole in the middle of the desert because the world is bad. 1 John chapter 2.15 says that. And Christians, wise Christians, they live in monasteries. They live an aesthetic life. They live on top of poles. Bad Christians, Christians who don't understand the Bible, they live in the world. Is that really what John is saying? I don't think it is. And I want to prove it to you. This is what I think verses 15 to 17 say. Verse 15 tells us what worldliness is not. This is what worldliness is not. Verse 16 tells us what worldliness is. And I think verse 17 tells us what worldliness will result in. Okay, verse 15, what worldliness is not. Verse 16, what worldliness is. Verse 17, what worldliness produces or what it results in. And that's our structure. We're going to work our way through. So let's look at verse 15. Number one, what is, what, what, what is worldliness not? Let's use a double negative. What is not worldliness? When you read the Bible, if you've had an opportunity to read the Bible, you see the world, God created the world, he spoke it into being, he sustains it by word of his creative power, even up until this day and on into the future. The word world often is used for physical stuff. So the world is beautiful. We ask David Attenborough, watch planet Earth, journey yourself. The world and all its created beauty is incredible. It's marred, it's stained, but it's still beautiful. So the word world can be used for mountains. The word world can be used for hilltops, it can be used for rivers and streams. The word world and the created order is animals and, and oceans and sunsets and sand and anything else being with S. That's what the word world can mean. It's stuff, it's matter, it's physical, it's things that you can see, but it's also things that you can't see. That's the spiritual reality of the spiritual world. And is John really saying, chapter 2, verse 15, don't have anything to do with the physical world? We thought of this in 1 John, chapter 1. There is a, an issue going on in the second century and also where there is an understanding where physical is bad and spiritual is good. And John is writing into that and he's saying that's not right. We saw Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1. We touched him, we heard him. Physical things are good. And the whole of the Bible teaches us that the world that God made is a good world because God is a good God. So John is not saying and using this world to say, stay away from the world, go and build your pole, run away from the world. He's not using the word in that way. So how is he using it? He doesn't want to encourage us to live aesthetically. There's another way to use the word world. God so loved the world, all that's in it, physical matter, stuff, people. 
But there's another way that the world can be used, and that's how it's used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. The other way to use the word world in the Bible is to describe a way of thinking. To describe not just what's in time and space, but to describe a value system, a mindset, uh, a set of priorities. So it's not using the word matter. That's one way to use the word world. But the other way to use the word world is, is a way of thinking, a set of motives, uh, a set of values, a set of priorities, internal heart stuff. And that's what 1 John chapter 2 is describing. But when you put these two things together, John and the whole of the Bible is really saying this. You cannot understand how to live in this world appropriately and rightly. You cannot understand the value of this world as limited but valuable unless you understand the reality of a future world. You cannot understand the value of this world unless you understand its limited purpose, its limited and contracted nature in light of all eternity. If you just think this world is all that there is, it will shape how you live, it will shape how you spend, it will shape what you do. But if you understand this world aright, if you understand this world in a limited nature, it's good, it's created by God, but it's in light of all eternity, it's a point in all of history, then you'll live in a very different way. Think of it like this. God loved the world enough to create it. John chapter 3 verse 16 says that. But God loves the world also enough to redeem it. Matter, material uh, stuff has inherent value. So the future, eternity, is not just going to be us on our clouds with harps. We've thought about this before. It's going to be solid and real and purposeful. It's going to be something we can enjoy and taste and see. It's going to be an eternity with God, but not just an ethereal floatingness. It's going to be recreation. The world as it was meant to be, with God enjoyed in all his fullness. We've got to understand this world from the perspective of eternity. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 does not use the first definition of world for created matter. It's all about motives and priorities and passions and desires. Oh yeah? Let me prove it to you. Point number two. If that's what the world is not, it's not in this passage used as concrete. It's used in terms of motives and passions. Let me prove it to you from point number two. What is worldliness? What is worldliness? Let's look at verse 16. Verse 16, John says, I'll tell you what worldliness is. And he begins by saying, for everything in the world. And he does not jump to created stuff. To define the world and worldliness, he does not jump to mountains and streams and rocks and snow-capped peaks. He does not jump to matter. He jumps to motives. And there are three little parts to the sentence that we're going to unpack. We've got an old version of the NIV. It's not helpful at this point. It uses different words. It has lusts and cravings, I think. The version we've got printed on our service sheet is more helpful because twice John uses the same Greek word, which is epithumia. Epi as in the epicenter, the very center of something. Epi as in the center of a storm. I don't know if you saw last week, it's a wonderful picture of a man mowing his lawn. He's out in the, in the central plains of America, and behind him, there's this huge tornado that's coming towards him. Does anyone see it? It's a great photo. And someone says, what on earth are you doing mowing your lawn when this storm's going to wreck your whole house? And he said, oh, I, I kept my eye on it. 
for the love of Americans. But here is John. He's not describing worldliness as stuff. He's describing worldliness as misplaced priorities, misplaced motives, over desires. That's the word epithumia. Your understanding of worldliness, the reason that you need to hate worldliness, is a better way of saying it, is because of misplaced and of over desires. Taking a good thing and making it a ruling thing. Taking a great thing and making it a God thing. And so John says in verse 16, the lusts of the body and the lusts of the eye. He's talking about sight things. Each one of these three values are to do with the eye, interestingly. He's talking about the lusts that you would see, the lusts of the body, things that you would value and enjoy. Perhaps beauty would be a second category. And then there's pride that comes from what you see and value as well. That's the third category. They're all linked together in an ascending way. And I want us to take a little bit of time to unpack each one. Let's look at the first one. The lusts of the body. This is what worldliness is. Three definitions of what worldliness is. Verse 16. What does John mean when he's talking about the the cravings or the lusts of the body? It's, It's over desires. It's a misplaced over-desire of a good thing that becomes a, a God thing, a good thing that becomes a ruling thing. I want to think about two. Two things that are really good, but they can become ruling or over-desiring things. Here's the first one, food and drink. Food and drink. This is all application this morning. Food and drink. I love food. Just look at me. I love drinking as well. But the Bible says that everything God has made is good, but you can even take something that's good and make it bad. It's interesting to me that in the last 30 years or so, quite a lot has been written about eating disorders and drinking disorders. You can normally spot someone or smell someone that struggles with uh, an alcohol problem. But someone who uses food as a means of control is far harder to spot. You take food and drink, which is a good thing, and you can make it into a ruling thing. When you use uh, food for control, when you start to use food and drink as a strategy to cope with life, when you use uh, too much food to binge and forget, whether you use too little food to control your body and to, to manage stressful situations, a good thing, food, becomes an over-desiring thing, a ruling thing in a negative way. Rather than um, eating to live, you start to live to eat. It becomes something that your identity is bound upon. See that div- division? You, everybody needs to eat to live, but if you live to eat, then you're taking something that is a good thing and you're making it into a ruling thing. There's any, nothing wrong with eating and drinking, but when you eat and drink to live, the thing that you is, that is good and valuable becomes a ruling thing, a controlling thing. It becomes an ultimate thing, a, a good desire, I'm hungry, A good desire, I'm thirsty, becomes a ruling thing. I need to not have that. I need to have more of that. I binge in front of the TV on sweets. That's me, because I want to forget chocolate is my idol. Actually, I want to withhold food from my body because my life is going out of control, but I can control that. Paul is saying that's a sign of worldliness, when no longer do you simply eat to live, but when you live to eat, whether you indulge or withhold. That's an epi-desire, a food and drink desire, a need that's become a ruling desire. 
But I'm not just going to pick on food. What about leisure? In the last 50 years, it's very interesting just how much of a whole industry has been made out of leisure. I read an article earlier in the week in the newspaper, and they were saying, looking at household spending, how in the last 10 years there's been a significant time of austerity and change. Bills have gone up. They always go up. Spending on necessities has increased. Some things have decreased. Lots of things have decreased. But they said one a priority in the household spending that's completely out of whack is entertainment. No one is giving up on Netflix. No one is giving up on Sky. No one's giving up on gym membership. That's something that is sacrosanct because our desire for finding meaning in our life when we're working so hard 60 hours a week, when we find ourselves in work situations that are not fulfilling, we start living for the weekend. We start thinking, I need to enjoy my life more so entertainment is turned up to the max. And, and this lifestyle choice of entertainment over work is just so clear in our society. So rather than just uh, eating to live, you live to eat. You can put it like this. You can rather, uh, rather than playing to live, you live for play. That's a good desire, the need for rest and relaxation so that you can work. That's what we're made for. But what about if you flip it culturally and say, actually, the only reason I work is so that I can play. That's a, a good thing, a good desire that's become a ruling desire. I'm living for the weekend. The radio players always do it. You get to Wednesday, it's only three days for the weekend. It's only two days for the weekend. It's the weekend. We've made it. It's all about living for pleasure. It's all about living for self. And Paul says, here are two examples, he would say others, that define worldliness. A good desire that God has given to you for food and drink that you need, for rest that you need so that you can work hard. But actually, misplaced desires was when it becomes an overarching, an epi-desire, a controlling desire, so that we live to eat and we live to play. And I was thinking this week, why is it, why do I struggle with this? Why do I think I deserve comfort? I deserve food. I deserve rest and relaxation. And I think it's because we have got a misplaced understanding of a, a very small understanding of what's to come, our understanding of the future is far smaller and shallower than Christians had in the past. And I came across this lady called Peggy Noonan. Peggy Noonan writes for the Wall Street Journal. She's a journalist. And she wrote a very interesting article some time ago about how society, Western society, has lost, has lost its bearings, has lost its understanding of the future, has lost its understanding of eternity. She says this, I think we've lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated, that in a way life is overrated. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this to be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, the short one. The life we enjoy now is the short one. But we are the first generation, Peggy says, we are the first generation of mankind that actually expected to find happiness here on earth. And our search for it has caused such unhappiness. The reason, if you do not believe in another, in a higher world, in the future, if you believe that this is your only chance at happiness, then you are not just disappointed when the world does not give you a good measure of its riches, you are despairing. I think that is so helpful. If this world is all there is, 
and my life does not measure up to my standards, if my marriage is not all the dreams and hopes that Disney said it would be, if this world is not as great as it was going to be, then I'm not just disappointed, I'm despairing. And that's why I want to live for the weekend. That's why I want to use food and alcohol in a way that it was never meant to be used for. If you don't believe in these two worlds, then you will be living a manic life. If you don't believe that your hope in an eternity will be better than the present, then you live for the now. You use your money in a certain way. You'll be frustrated in this world that it doesn't measure up to your hopes and dreams. You'll struggle with depression. You'll be fearful and anxious because this world is all there is. But, says Peggy, if, unlike the rest of the generation, if you understand the now in light of the then, then that completely shapes how you are to live in the present. If you understand the future, if that shapes you now, I don't even know if she's a Christian, but if you live in the light of the future, Peggy says, you won't over-worry. You won't get too distressed when you get ripped off. You won't get too sad when sorrow comes because you understand that this world is something you're passing through. You will understand that the best is yet to be. If you're a worldly person, you concentrate on your image because it's so important to you. It defines you. You hold on to your money because it's all you have. It gives you identity. You want your uh, family never to leave you because they are also part of your identity. That's the definition of misplaced desires. Those are just a few things. Let's get on to the second clause. What about the lusts of the eye? What about the lusts of the eye? We're going to go quicker. Verse 16 again. The lusts of the eye, you look out, I think really this is about beauty. This is about beauty and the exterior. Christians do not or should not have over-desires of what it means to appear in a certain way. Christians should have a bit like Superman, not underpants on the outside, that would be inappropriate, but Nick has got some great shorts on today. Christians should have x-ray vision. Christians should have x-ray vision. They should be able to see through that beauty is not just skin deep, that L'Oreal got it wrong, we are not worth it. Christians should be able to look through and see, actually, character matters more than a few spots on the outside. Character matters more than actually how much makeup you can put on to cover a few flaws. It's so important to see that Christians should have x-ray vision. The world looks on the outside, but Christians, like God, should always look on the heart. I think Shrek is a great example of this, if you've seen it. Uh, the wonderful story that's told by, I think it's uh, DreamWorks or Disney Pixar, one of the two. No one is attracted to Shrek, and yet it's really a love story that shows that beauty is not just skin deep. Our world is consumed with face, figure, and fashion. But Christians should have x-ray vision because the lusts of the eye need to be seen through. Worldliness just values how you look, the labels you wear. But surely as Christians, we should not be that shallow. And we should have x-ray vision to what really matters. Because that's another whole industry, isn't it? Not just leisure, but beauty. Billions of pounds are spent on injecting ourselves with things so that things don't go south. So that we join memberships so that things get tighter and harder when actually they're getting more relaxed. Please don't be laughing at me. <laughs> but here's the acid test, to be really honest. When so much money can be spent on beautification and of a nip and a tuck and 
The acid test of whether we see that this world is passing through is how you and I spend our money. If you think that this world is all there is, this is where your money will be invested. If you're convinced that actually investing in eternity is more important, your money will be invested in a completely different location. Let me ask you, as you look at the end of the month and you balance the books, are you being more generous to yourself in this world? Do you have worldly convictions in how you spend your money? Or are you investing in what is going to last forever? That's gospel ministry. That's gospel ministry locally, nationally, internationally. As you look at your bank balance, what priority does it reveal? It never lies. Where are you investing your money? Because if you say, well, I'm a Christian here this morning, and I know that there's a heaven, and I know that there's eternity, but you invest all your money in worldly priorities, can you see there's a huge disconnect there? The lust of the eye. Let's look at the third thing, the pride of life. Back in verse 16, the order is very, very important here. There are over-desires, epi-desires, controlling desires of the eye, of the body, but then there's the pride of life. Each one is getting worse. Now, in most church life, we don't categorize things in this way. We can say, I had so-and-so's got a drink problem, so-and-so struggled with gambling, so-and-so struggled with pornography. We can see those. Things on the outside, their marriage is broken down. Things on the outside are easy to see. But here is John, and he's saying, then there's the pride of life. How do we struggle in a church with that? Perhaps it's like this. So-and-so has ignored me. I'm trying to grab the spotlight in what I do. It wasn't gossip. I was saying, I want to pray for you. And I've shared it so that they can pray for you as well. I'm not jealous. I just don't want you to have it. Very easily, we can take things that we think are wrong and just Christianize them by 10%. And here's John saying, actually, it's not just worldliness out there. Worldliness is in here too. It's not just uh, things that are easy to identify. It's heart issues of backbiting. It's heart issues of slander. It's heart issues of not saying something to someone's face that you say behind their back. It's easy to spot big sins. But here's John, he's saying, Paul, here's John, and he's saying, you know what? This is far closer to home. It's about motives. It's about priorities. It's about desires. And you kind of think, well, how could that be worse? Surely noticeable big sins are... They're worse than small sins. I mean, I understand that I struggle sometimes with my tongue. I cut people down. I say things that are unkind. But they're not really as bad as big sins. But it's so interesting when, in the life of Jesus, when he's there in Mark 5, 6, 7, when he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, he warns the religious people who think they've got their religious ducks in a row, who, who wear the right religious clothes, who say the right religious words. And he says to them, you are far further away from the kingdom than you think. Because pride is such a barrier, pride in your religious standing, pride in your religious merit and your religious credentials. I didn't come for you, said Jesus, I came for the sinners and the prostitutes. I came for those who are outside who you look down your nose on. So pride is a huge issue, says Jesus and says John. But you might think, well, okay, if I really let my guard down, if I took my mask off, if I have a coffee at the end, shared with someone appropriately really what I'd done and seen and thought this week, they really would want to run away from me. They would see how scandalous some of the mistakes I've made in the, my past has been. 
You wouldn't want me to be part of your church if you really knew who I was and what I did and thought and the places I've been to. Friends, if that's what you're thinking this morning, can I just remind you of the gospel again? Our sin is not the problem. Because of the cross that we celebrate shortly around the Lord's table, Jesus has made a way to deal with our sin. Our sin is not the problem. It is our pride. Our pride is the cancer that stops us coming to Jesus. I'm not like them. I'm better than them. I don't need to. I can save myself. And here is C.S. Lewis, and he says it so helpfully in this way. He says, pride is, pride is much worse than all the other sins. Pride is like a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, of contentment, or even common sense. This is what worldliness is, things that we look at with our eyes. It's not matter, it's motives and priorities that can creep into our spirit, that can take good things and make them ruling things, that we become so undiscernible from the world that when people come in, when they rub shoulders from us and with us, they say, I didn't know you were a Christian. If anyone says that to us, it's so discouraging because it means we're not living distinctly and differently. So if that's what worldliness is not, verse 15, if that's what worldliness is, verse 16, how do we escape it? Finally, how do we escape it? How do we deal with worldliness? Look at verse 16. For everything that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And back to verse 15. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Worldliness is looking for love in all the wrong places. Worldliness is looking for acceptance in the wrong places. It's looking for approval in the wrong places. It's looking for things in the world that will never satisfy. It's a bit like eating Pringles. You know when you start and you pop that lid, you're just going to pop them away, but they will never, ever satisfy. What you need is a proper crisp like a McCoy. But worldliness says, look, God doesn't love me. You're believing the lie of Satan. God doesn't love me. The world will love me. God is not trustworthy. God is not real. He's not there. But the world is. And so I'll give myself to my career, to this relationship. I'll give myself to money, to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I will give myself to the world because there is love and you can feel it and taste it and touch it. This world is all there is. That's the lie that we're so tempted to believe. So how do we escape worldliness? Do we build ourselves a pole? Do we go and join a commune? Do we uh, renounce and uh, resign tomorrow and, and go out and get our, kick the habit and put a habit on? That kind of stuff. How do we do this? Friends, we need to replace our love for the world with a greater and a deeper love. One of the things about being a parent is that you get very hurt when your children don't do what you say in a way that if other people disobey you, it doesn't matter you as much. Why? Regardless of how old your kids are, you've wiped their backsides. You've fed them drinks in the middle of the night. You've made sacrifices for them financially, physically, practically. You think, if you only knew what I did for you, and you begin the list. Because you love them so much, you want them to heed what you say, and you hurt when your children disobey you in a greater way than if it was another person. Because you love them more. Friends, the only way to overcome 
the desire in our hearts for approval and acceptance and love that the world says it offers, but it's just like Pringles, it will never satisfy. It's to dote and to think upon the love that God has shown to us. It's the only way. If you as a parent are hurt, if you as a parent are hurt in a different way when your children say no to you, when they disobey you, think how much God is, I use my words carefully, hurt. Think how much God is affected by our disobedience when we say, no, rather than accepting your love, I'm going to go elsewhere. I'm going to desire something more than you. Think about how the fact that the gospel tells us that through Jesus Christ, through faith and love in him, we are forgiven, we are ransomed, we are restored, we are adopted as his children. He is our heavenly father. He's given us all things, blessing upon blessing. He's lavished his kindness upon us. And yet we say, rather than loving you, I want to love the world more. Think how that affects him. Dote on him. Think. He hasn't just fostered us, as wonderful as that is. He's adopted us. He's made a new and living way. He's paid all the prices that need to be paid. He's taken all the risks. Think about when you disobey, how much it grieves him. If you aggrieve when your kids dis disobey and grieve, uh, or turn their back on you, think about how God is grieved when we turn our back on him. Think about how he, he feels, if that's the right way to, to use that word. And friends, to the degree that you grasp that, not just intellectually, but emotionally. That will change your behavior. That will shape how you spend your time. That will change how you balance your books at the end of the months. Not because you're trying to win his approval because you already have it. But your priorities will be shaped and fashioned by your understanding of the love of God. You'll be free, free from needing to live to eat. Free from using food and drink in that way. You'd be free from uh, living for comfort, like leisure. Free to live for money. Free to live not for career, but for God. Free to live for people just to notice you. So you start doing stuff and speaking about things because you want to accrue credit with people. Friends, it's freedom when you see how much in Christ God loves you. You're free from being a worldly person. And you're free for living for him. Look at verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. Same word. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. Father, please, would we be able to dote, to think upon all the love that you have lavished on us in Jesus, and that would expel, that would cast out any temptation we have to live for other things. Help us to see how you've cherished us in Jesus. Help us to see how you have rescued us in Jesus. Help us to see how you've given us meaning and a new name and a new future and a security in Jesus that will and can only satisfy our deepest longings. Please help us to see us afresh, that we would increasingly be godly men and women rather than worldly men and women. Help us to hate the world in terms of its motivations and the things that it lives for. Help us to live a discontent life with what we see and taste and smell and hear and do. And help us to live now 
with the priority of life in every single facet of our life, knowing that the best is yet to be. Help us to be people with x-ray vision so we're not attracted to people just by what we see on the outside. But help us to be people of substance, that the gospel and the weightiness of the future would be of ballast to our hearts so that we would be people of substance, people who are immovable amongst all the changing things of life. Help us, we pray. Amen.